Okay. Um, so with my research, uh, there was an article I found called The Science of Love, and it discussed the three main phases of falling in love. Um, I found that this information was repeated on a lot of sites, so it seems to hold a lot of truth to it. Um, so the first phase they call is lust. So they said that this phase is driven by sex hormones, testosterone, and estrogen. Is that the right one? Oh, yep. yes. Yeah. Um, and this is a major role in the sex drive of males and females. And this phase is what gets you looking for people. So that's what ignites your interest in going out, meeting people. Uh, the second phase, they said, is attraction. And this is known as the love struck phase. Um, so within this stage, a group of neurotransmitters called monamines plays an important role. So dopamine was the first one. Um, and this contributes to feelings of pleasure and satisfaction, and it's part of the reward system. Um, norepinephrine, I don't know if I said that correctly. Norepinephrine. Uh, norepinephrine, sorry. Uh, this is yep. what starts us sweating, gets your heart racing. This is a stress hormone. And serotonin was the third one that they noticed or noted, and this is the most important chemical. And this is what they said makes us temporarily insane when we fall in love. So this is the happy neurotransmitter. It's involved in the regulation of mood, sleep, and low levels of this uh, results in high sex drive and low, sorry, low levels equals high sex drive and high levels equals a low sex drive. Um, and then the third phase is attachment. And they said that this is the longer lasting commitment. And this is the bond that keeps people together. Um, and within this system, they said that oxytocin and, um, shoot, where did the second one go? Um, oxytocin. Uh, is it vasopressin for males? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So they said that this is really prevalent in childbirth and this is what helps a lot of mothers and children bond when a child is first born so they noted that it's not necessarily just for romantic love it can be for love of your child and so forth so that's great yes did you uh Ayaz it sounds like you were reading a little bit about this did you have anything you want to contribute um, yeah, well, sex differences in falling in love, I guess. So how it is for women versus men. Um, so the initial attraction where the dopamine goes up for both of them is true. Um, but the thing to keep in mind is that males have higher levels of testosterone. So something that they noted was when women had those feelings of attraction and they were in love, their testosterone goes high or increase there's an increase in testosterone uh, making them act slightly more aggressively whereas if a man is in love their testosterone levels decrease so they even um did studies to see um they took married men men in committed relationships and single men and they looked at their testosterone levels um so the single man had a relatively high testosterone level and why they wanted to see committed versus married because they wanted to see if it's marriage itself or is it that the fact that they're committed, but they saw um, testosterone levels in married and committed men were 
similar or about about the same. Um, another difference was that um, for females, once um once in a relationship, um, so a lot of times when like cuddling, kissing, all that stuff increases oxytocin, uh, which is the bonding. Uh, neurotransmitter and uh, it peaks um, so you release even more um, for men however um, since there's a lot more testosterone in there and it's uh, or they have a lot more testosterone and it kind of counteracts the oxytocin you have vasopressin which increases um during the same activities, cuddling, all that stuff. But during orgasm um, or after orgasm, it will drop. So there was some differences there, but... And that's both vasopressant... Sorry, vasopressant and Did you say? It's it's vasopressant in males and oxytocin in females. That drops after orgasm. So... For females, oxytocin increases during and after orgasm. Vasopressin drops in males after orgasm, but it increases gradually okay. during, let's say, foreplay. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned the differences between males and females because um, this wasn't so much related to neuroscience, but I thought that it tied into it, was they looked at the evolutionary theories behind mating and what I found really interesting was the differences they found in what men look for versus what females look for. So they said that um, obviously mating has an evolutionary basis to it. So the entire point of looking for people was to um, for your genes to carry on and to reproduce children and such. And they said that men typically base their their choices of women on physical appearance and this physical appearance isn't necessarily vain they said that it had more to do with giving cues and information about a woman's health and her ability to procreate so they said this is why men typically look for shiny hair clear skin wide hips um, and a physical physically healthy body because that signals that she's likely getting proper nutrition she's um able to bear children that would be healthy and survive. And then they noted that females, on the other hand, they don't necessarily base their mating choices off of appearance. They usually base it off of things such as um, their significant other's ambition, their social status, their drive, because way back when, women stayed at home. So they needed to find a male that was able to provide them with a roof over their head, you know, water, food, and and they they actually said that this is why sometimes attractive women will end up with men that are not necessarily at the same level of attractiveness. So they, they noted that this is an evolutionary basis and, and not so much um, a, a vanity thing, which I, I thought that that was, that was interesting because I've noticed it in a lot of people I've encountered, so... Yeah, I believe it's um, deeply ingrained in our mammalian brains is that difference, especially for men. I know, I think about 80% of it, the attraction or whatever it is, is visual compared to women. They incorporate a whole bunch of things or 
they, for them, it's a uh, multifactorial, I guess. So whereas for men, a lot of it is just based on visual and something that we know of like our culture, like these days is obsessed with like, you know, wide hips or yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a good reason for that because wide hips, they do indicate fertility and um, just how, uh, what, what the condition is for that female to be bearing a child. So, for them to bear you a healthy offspring for you to pass your genes on. Um, another interesting interesting thing that I found was that um, how women and men treat um, sexual relationship differently, or at least um, in, in a general sense, I mean, for where for men, especially in their younger years, or in general, they, they would want a lot of partners, um, they're not they don't want to they don't want to exactly commit immediately they would they want a lot of partners whereas women they tend to get into relationships and then stick with that one partner and then build a relationship thereon um not to say men don't do that too but um especially in the earlier years they, they do a lot more exploring i would say um and the reason just for that is because evolutionarily speaking, again, um, the fastest way or the most efficient way for uh, a male would be to have multiple partners to spread their to spread their genes and to have multiple offsprings. Whereas for a female, they can't do the same because they actually have to carry the offspring for nine months. So in that case, they would need a partner who would be while during their pregnancy they can rely on to take care of them and their nutrition and their um any other needs yeah i'm going to take this in a bit of a different direction for a second um there is someone i was reading about in this area her name is helen fisher uh, she's done a lot of research work around this whole topic um she took for example a group of 2500 uh college level students and used functional magnetic resonance imaging because they were trying to find out the question actually was is love from the heart strictly or is does it impact like uh, brain region and so what she did was she did this fMRI exam on these students and they gave them pictures of let's say their boyfriend, girlfriend, or somebody they would, would love versus somebody who is a colleague of theirs and actually watched. And there was quite a number of um, <clears throat> regions that had lit up in the brain when they examined the pictures of the people they were in intimate relationship with. Mm. Do you so, remember which areas of the brain they saw were more active when they were? I am just trying to look because I want to make sure that I actually uh, pronounce this properly. Uh, one of the nucleus that uh, has to do with the reward system. Um, a lot of what you did. The nucleus, is before. it? Go ahead. Was it nucleus accumbens? Yeah, that was actually mentioned in there, and there was another one as well. I just hadn't gotten to that one yet. We may have actually found the same study, possibly, Chris, because, or maybe this was just a summary of the one you found, but it was again the with other, the photos, and they mentioned the, the other one was 
Pod eight. Pod eight. Yeah. 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 So that was mentioned in there quite a bit as well. It was one of the regions that had actually been up during the fMRI study. Mm -hmm. They also mentioned the ventral tegmental area as well. I found it. Yeah. Yeah. I think we read the same, probably the same one then. <laughs> Likely, yes. So did you, uh, do you happen to know what, what neurotransmitter is um, most active in these? Are you familiar with that, either of you? Um, they were talking about uh, dopamine yeah. in one of them. Uh, ne uh, neuropinephrine, the one we were talking about earlier. And... Not particularly in this one, but I also did read about the um, the one that AS mentioned, oxy oxytocin. Yeah, I I had here as well. Uh, they mentioned the stress hormone cortisol, and they also mentioned serotonin as well, and the interaction yeah. between them. Yeah, um, I think cortisol increase is during initial interaction um let's say if you were to walk into a bar i guess and then you would you were to see someone attractive that you wanted to talk to your cortisol would go up indicating a higher stress level because and then you probably get the nervous um those those nervous feelings of like a sweaty palm or you know elevated heart rate and breathing because you're preparing yourself to go talk to them um and if it's a if it goes well, like let's say you flirt with someone and you see it getting or heading in the right direction, then you would see a dopamine increase because you'd see that well it was it was a reward because you did something, you accomplished something, so that would be targeting your reward systems, um, just bonding in general. So like. Um, Oxytocin would be for bonding. So if you were if you were doing a lot of activities together or spending, you know, um, quality time together, a lot of a lot of intimacies. Just not just um, it's just not uh, sex driven. Just just in general intimacy would increase oxytocin. Um, and yeah, of course, uh, serotonin is just a it's is one of the more most important neurotransmitters. So in mood regulation. Um, that would play a part as well. Yeah, they they noted in this one that when cortisol increases with romantic love, that uh, serotonin decreases. Mm -hmm. And they said that this decrease in serotonin, this is what causes um, intrusive, mattingly preoccupying thoughts, hopes, and fears of love. And they said that this can be responsible for the obsessive compulsive like behaviors associated with infatuation. So always being obsessed with Oh my gosh, what is this guy? Uh, like, what is, what is this person doing? Did they like my photos, et cetera, et cetera? Hmm. Now, Amanda, I didn't find anything in there, but, um, you know, based on studying the brain and whatnot, would the amygdala play a, a big role or at least partial role in, in this mix as well? Yeah, we would expect it to. I mean, you know, it's it's interesting even, um, like, the study that Lauren brought up at the very beginning, of Love, was a really good uh, introduction to the, like, idea that there are different phases. And I think what's happening um, in some of these studies, looking at the different phases, and even when you started talking about uh, 
the, the what we typically say is the reward system, you know, the basal ganglia area, the, the caudate that you were referring to in the nucleus accumbens and ventral tegmental area, like these are systems that we we do typically think of as reward. But some of the research that I've done in the past and involves looking at dopamine in these systems more from a wanting perspective as opposed to a reward perspective. And and there's a slight difference there. Even, you know, uh, so anyway, yeah, the, the slight difference is that feeling, you know, wanting something requires a desire. And, you know, it's not entirely pleasurable, whereas reward, we think of it as being very pleasurable. But wanting... A, a need, like a, a, you know, that that just feels different when you. And so even that fMRI study where they were shown pictures of their 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 boyfriend, girlfriend, partner, whatever, versus just a person they know, you know who you claim to be in love with, you want to be with them, likely. And there's a, a part of you that wants to. So it's that image would be rewarding but more so that you have this desire to be with them. And so that could be different than the oxytocin-mediated phase where it's this, like, comfortability being together, this, um, you know, this this bond, right? This that oh, and feeling, you know, connected with this, this other half or whatever you want. And, of course, the amygdala, um, and which we know is, and emotion be part of this as well because there are strong emotions beyond just the wanting and the bonding but you know it could be you know a little bit of fear that cortisol that both of uh, Lauren and Ayaz was talking about like that stress there is that like you know um, it, it's stressful <laughs> you know not being able to access that person you know there's a, it's not it's not just all this wonderful love, like love isn't all wonderful. There's like a very complex set of experiences involved in it, right? Yeah, I, I actually did a bit of research, not so much on the positive parts of love, but I looked at breakups too and how, you know, the, the fact that love is semi-disappearing or the relationship is over. They mentioned six systems that were involved when you uh, experience a breakup and they weren't so much um, mentioning different parts of the brain. Maybe you could give more insight into this, but they mentioned how um, each system causes certain types of behaviors that you, that you typically engage in when you break up with someone. Um, So the first system they noted was the bonding system. Um, And they said that this system is involved with connection, primarily run by oxytocin and vasopressin. I believe I said that right. Um, And they said that this system, when you experience a breakup, it goes into overdrive. And this is what pushes us backwards. So going back and saying, no, I want you back. I want to pursue this relationship. Give it another try. Uh, The second system they noted was the reward system. Uh, again, and they said this is associated with motivation towards wanting somebody that we value. And they noted again, dopamine, endogenous opiates are the primary neurochemical drivers of the system. And this is involved in pleasure and pain. And they noted it, it's also involved with drug addiction. So that's, you know, craving a drug. 
You said that's the same way you can crave being with an ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend or even just craving that person in general outside of a breakup. Um, and they said that the serotonin in, involved in this system as well can be responsible for the feelings of obsessive thoughts, negativity, and impulsive behavior that, that some people engage in, whether it's sending nasty text messages or showing up at their house with a bouquet and a radio on your shoulder trying to, trying to bring them back to you. Um, third system was the pain system. And they said that this is likely what's responsible for the feelings of having a broken heart, being sad and grieving the person. They said that the opiate levels drop and this is what contributes to feeling distressed and, and an emotional pain. Um, the fourth system was the stress system. And they said that they, they tend to react immediately following a breakup and it causes hyper arousal in the individual. So um, this is why after breakup, you tend to experience severe anxiety, heart palpitations, your appetite changes, and you may not sleep well. Uh, second last one, the fifth, is emotion regulation system. So they stated that it's the prefrontal cortex, which helps regulate emotions and to control our impulses. So they said that this, is, this system is less engaged after a breakup. And this is what makes it tough for ourselves to, to, to talk ourselves out of a difficult spot or feeling balanced in life. So feeling like there's something that you have in your life other than this relationship. And then the last network was the cognitive network. And they said that during periods of stress, the brain actually shifts away from cognitive thinking and instead regulates a system, putting it towards emotional regulation. And they said, this is why after a breakup, you know, you go to class and you have a difficulty concentrating, getting things done, you become forgetful and you have a difficult time organizing your life. So yeah, that was a lot of information, but I, I thought that that was kind of tied in what you said, Mandy, about the wanting and the desire and the needing someone. Actually, I actually read something similar where they were talking about the addiction and it's funny because they were comparing it to chocolate. Now <laughs> uh, you can become addicted to eating chocolate and it's sort of the same scenario uh, with, you know, with love and relationships and all the things that you just explained there. <laughs> now I also looked, go ahead. And go ahead, I also looked into something else. Um, in a bit of a different way again, and this is how the nature-nurture debate uh, comes in, ties into all this. Um, and it was discussion about how um, <clears throat> if people are raised in a household that, that's loving, or even from a baby's perspective, they're getting the nurturing and whatnot from the mother, uh, completely change the focus uh, or could completely change the focus of how someone is in their adulthood versus is not. Generally speaking, someone who's grown up in an abusive household or violent or someone that's you know, not very nurturing uh, could tend to turn to be that way later on in life, around the times where you know things start where <clears throat> puberty and whatnot when you start to see these attachments. 
it, it won't be as easy if, if sometimes they're able to do them at all. Sorry, it won't be easy if what, Chris? So if they were brought up in a, a less nurturing sort of a household or somewhere where there's violence abuse, it will be more difficult when they get older to actually form like loving relationships because it's not necessarily something that they've known growing up. So it's a little more difficult. Yeah, I think that, like, all of that that you're bringing up, Chris, is really um, important work that relates to attachment parenting. Um, and there is a lot of, and even just, like, early life experiences and how it affects uh, the brain, including the stress system. So there's a lot of work uh, that I would have presented in your neuroscience class as well about, um, you know, what happens to the stress system and that it changes some of the cortisol receptors uh, related to uh, whether you have a really nurturing uh, upbringing. So, and this was done in rats and we, there's also comparisons with humans as well. So uh, nurturing aspect of the environment really can affect our, our biology and then our ability to be resilient and respond to stress when we're older uh, and all those things. And so this is, but parenting people have uh, latched onto this research and this these concepts as a way of rearing their children in a in an attempts to be what they think is very loving and uh, foundational for a future. Yeah. No, I, we talked know. about it in great detail in our personality course too, just the attachment. Uh, attachment theory and attachment styles like your uh, your attachment to your parents or how you were raised has it's a great predictor and great indicator of how um, your relationships are going to pan out and how you're going to form an attachment to your significant other um, those things might change um, in the future as in um, interactions with other people might change your attachment styles. Like if you had a bad relationship with someone that may change your attachment style, but um, the early years are very important. Yeah, I believe how, if you have a secure relationship, especially with your mother, you're likely to have a secure and trusting relationship with your partner, so on and so forth. No, do you think that this can be, I imagine uh, the attachment that somebody experiences in their childhood, it can be reversed or altered in later life correct? I believe so, yeah. When I, when I look at, you know, animals that have been abused and uh, neglected, their behavior, if you ever see it before and after training, the animal tends to be very aggressive and lashes out at, you know, their trainer. And then through learning and reinforcement and, and all the processes involved in changing their behavior, that same angry dog ends up becoming calm, loving and relaxed so i i would imagine it can be it can be changed um your attachment styles as you as you grow older and you have more positive relationships correct it's just how you get out of um the cycle of being in negative relationships and then finding one that's actually healthy and good for you mm -hmm. and i would imagine <clears throat> excuse me that experience would be very different Mm -hmm. individually because it would be based on 
to what degree all these these things have been experienced. Yeah, there was, um, so speaking of attachment, I, I also looked into the topic of whether animals have the capacity to love. Because I know mm -hmm. that that's, some people say, oh, your dog doesn't love you. It just, you know, spends time with you because you give it food and water and everything it needs to survive. But there was a study um, where they looked at the brains of animals and they suggested that they're able to experience the same range of emotions that humans can and that their brains are similar to humans. And they noted that this this was kind of displayed not just through the fMRI studies that they did, but it was also noted through their attachment with their owners and caregivers. Um, do you know what type of animals they were? Or was um, it they said that they it was done in a zoo and they oh. used pets and but I believe so I think what I found was a compilation of a few studies together. And they noted with dogs, as an example, mourning them. Yeah. So they, they said, you know, there was a case where an, a dog's owner passed away. This was back in the 1800s in, in Scotland. And the dog stayed on his grave crying every single day for 14 years until the dog died. Mm -hmm. So they, they said that this attachment... Attachment in general is a is a form of love, whether it's an animal and a human or, you know, two well, humans loving each other. I wonder I'll if... I'll give you a personal experience with that just quickly. Mm -hmm. um, my guide dog, Romain, mm -hmm. very first thing that, that they do when we get our first, like our guides for the first time, yeah. is they have us sit in our room yeah. and just play with the dog, pat it, uh, you know, do a whole bonding piece so that they can connect because they've just come from the kennel full of dogs, they're trainers, they're yeah. puppy raisers, all the situations they've been as they've been raised. So now they're coming into us. We're new people. They don't know us. They can't trust us, so to speak. Yeah. So the whole sort of part of the first day of of getting a guide dog is working on that bonding piece and letting them get to know, you know, who we are. Mm -hmm. we feed them, we do everything so that yeah. they get to know. Yeah. And that, sorry, sorry, Mandy, I know this kind of went in a bit of a different direction, but this is uh, positive reinforcement and that sort of thing, no different than it is with, with humans and bonding. Mm -hmm. I definitely wouldn't say this went into the, a, a different, I'm happy with all this stuff. This is all of animals. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, this is really interesting. I mean, I personally love animals. I have a dog and a cat and, you know, I, I love my animals and I mm -hmm. always love them more than the humans around me because yeah. they're, they're easier. Yeah. They, uh, sorry, go ahead, Mandy. I was just going to say like, there's a different kind of, uh, I don't even know if I could say it's like a different kind of love, but there's a different kind of attachment uh, and a bond, especially when it's not based on, the language and the narration of life that we have with other humans. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I well, think with, it's just with it's Romain, it's a command. It's a command. Good boy and a treat. And he's your best friend. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mandy, I wonder. Um, I'm like, I feel like your dog may reciprocate your love, but I wonder if your cat does too. <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually, they said in this that cats do not act the same way. 
Yeah. Because mm-hmm. they, they looked at uh, the attachment between dogs and their owners, like removing their owners. And the dogs apparently had a similar reaction as infants do when they're taken from their mother when they're early. Like, And by taken, it doesn't necessarily mean taken and given to another family. It just means, you know, an aunt picks up the child while the mom goes and, you know, gets the mail or something. But they said that the cats did not respond in the same way. In fact, they almost showed no, um, I wouldn't say no reaction, but they they weren't distressed by it. They just kind of sat there, which I, I thought was funny. Sorry, and you're very distant now for some reason. Am I? Oh, yeah, well, for me, anyways. Is that better? It's uh, um, maybe I didn't notice much of a difference. Okay. Uh, Mandy, Ayas, can you guys hear me okay? Uh, I can hear you, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I find the dogs versus cats really interesting. Ayas, did you, you asked about that. Do you have something to share about that? Um, just, are you just curious? I was just curious because, um, general behavior of like uh, from observation, cats versus dogs, like dogs are, I feel like they're more engaged with their owner, um, rather than cats. They're engaged in the the actual playtime or like if you, if you were to play, play around with a cat and you'd be using like a yarn ball or whatever laser, they're more into that. Whereas the dogs, yeah, they might be into the Frisbee or the stick that you're throwing, but they're also engaging with you. Um, and how they show affection. Like, you know, if you were to walk into your house, your dog would probably come running in, uh, running to you, wanting to be petted and all that. Mm-hmm. Versus a cat, it would act nonchalant. <laughs> it just sits there. Yeah. yeah. They, uh, uh, I have... I have heard that cats, I don't have one personally, but I have heard that they could be very antisocial mm-hmm. type animals. Yeah. And so that affection piece that you're talking about, you know, you're not going to find a, a cat doing what, what Romaine does, running over to me with his bone hanging mm-hmm. out of his mouth, like, come on, yeah. let's play. It's not going to mm-hmm. happen. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. Well, apparently with these dogs, so it was within the same study, Gregory Burns, he did an fMRI neuroimaging test uh, looking at the dogs, sorry, the brains of dogs. And when they did this, they found an increased activity in regions of their brains associated with attachment, empathy, and a theory of mind in response to their owners. So they said, this is why, you know, when you leave a room, your dog tends to follow you. Empathy, they found interesting because I can't speak for everybody, but when I've been sick or I've come home and I've been really upset, I feel as though my dog Chester picks up on that right away. He he knows that I'm not myself. And then the theory of mind, they said in particular, is a belief system about what others think and want, and it's continually updated. So it's in humans, but they said if it's in animals, which they noted in these dogs, they infer that dogs would typically always wonder what their owners are thinking about. So I thought that was really, really interesting. The, f- the fact that not only that they feel love, but you know, when your dog's sitting there, it's, it's not necessarily just thinking, okay, there's Lauren sitting at the kitchen eating dinner with my family. Chester in particular might be thinking, what's wrong with her? Is she sad? What is, I mean, the complexity of it, we don't know, but, uh, Gregory Burns found that dogs wonder what we think. 
Do you happen to know what species of dogs they were looking at? Um, no, I, I didn't actually. I can find that for the summary, but I, I would imagine it'd have to be a more intelligent dog because I, I know that their intelligence kind of depends on their um their breed if I'm yeah well yeah and and even just their attunement to humans I think Mm -hmm. because I mean I think about my dog Jet is a border collie retriever and I've had um I had a really close connection with a a roommate's dog that I knew for two years from when she was a puppy for like two or three years or whatever and Mm -hmm. she was a labradoodle and you know I love them both the same but there's you know Jet my border collie mix no is very attuned to me and my emotions um but she's also a breed obviously that is there to serve and to be obedient and to work with humans and and that's how she's been bred or part of how she's been bred whereas end up being more of a cat (laughs) in terms of their their needs they're just like yeah i can take you or leave you but (laughs) Yeah, I, I'm not sure the breed. I can look into that. But, I mean, speaking for myself, I have a poodle. So they're, mm-hmm. they're one a, a smart dog. And we had a German Shepherd as well, who, again, is are very intelligent dogs. Most of them I've met. Yeah. I'm interested to know, um, I guess, the difference between people who, I guess, feel for animals or, like, have that connection with animals versus who don't. Um, cause like, me not being an animal person, like I have no problems with animals, but I just, I, I wouldn't have a pet for myself where I don't really like look at a dog or a picture of a dog and find it cute. Same goes for any other animal. So, <laughs> I think again, that depends on how you were brought up, like the nature versus mm-hmm. nurture. I guess that would fall into the nurture. Um, but it's weird because my grandma and my mom both owned cats and I grew up with cats <laughs> and yeah they they tend I think they loved them a lot and we had we had both pets at uh, cat and dogs but I was never really too big on them like I, I, I'm interested to know like how what what is the mechanism behind that like why some people find animals cute and others don't <laughs> I think it has to do a lot too with, sorry, you had cut out there. Um, It has to do with with cultural, um, maybe religious type beliefs, and again, how you're brought up. So you're brought up in a specific culture or a specific place in the world where, you know, dogs are only known one way. Mm -hmm. Then you're not going to be used to... um, you know, let's say Canada, where I don't know what the statistics of dogs, you know, per number of households is, but dogs are very, very, very common, whether it's for pets, whether it's now for service dogs for different things, which is growing rapidly. Um, And to someone who's been brought up not knowing, you know, the, the way it is in Canada, Mm-hmm. it's going to be perceived very different than what it would be to us who are in Canada. So it, speaking of, of, again, the whole attachment and the nurture and how you're being brought up. So this is kind of interesting because speaking for myself, I've always, always grown up with dogs. I've never had any period of, my, I think maybe a week after our old poodle Levi passed. 
we had about a week where we didn't have a dog and it was the weirdest thing. I mean, when I came home from the hospital, my mom had three miniature poodles and she said that she put me on the couch when I was a baby and our dogs were very well behaved. So there wasn't really any risk. And she let Jamie, Dee Dee and Teddy come around me and, and sniff me and see, you know, what's this little human doing here? Um, so I guess maybe that can shape behavior because I'm I'm obsessed with dogs. I mean, I've told my family if the house catches on fire, I'm grabbing Chester and good luck to you guys, you know? And <laughs> my my first word, funny, funny enough, my first word my mom said was woof. So I guess maybe it's just how much time you spend around dogs, but again, maybe it was just something in me that made me understand woof before I understood mom and dad. <laughs> so yeah. Well, as much as I would like to continue this conversation, I actually think this relates to another concept that that I am going to be exploring later in mm-hmm. future um, podcasts, um, which is multiple intelligence, and uh, basically that you know people have different. Uh, tendencies to be intelligent in certain ways. And one of those is, you know, connecting with animals and, you know, connection through nature and um, like relationships that span different, you know, species or whatever. And so I think these are all really interesting. And and I I think it's really interesting to note the differences between any of us here, really, Um, never mind, you know, anyone outside of this. But, um, But I do think we're going a little bit too far away from yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it is related, but there, I actually had a couple questions that I wanted to ask you all and see what you thought about this, because yeah. one of the things that we've been talking mostly about is primarily heterosexual, um, I guess not, because we've been talking about attachment, but when we've been talking about like romantic love, it's been, sounds like it's been from the context of heterosexual uh, mm-hmm. love. And I'm wondering if anyone has any, had any, found anything or has any, um, thoughts on like homosexual love, romantic love, and you know, come in your search about that. No, I had, yeah, and I actually didn't find anything in my research about that. That would have been a good topic to look at. <laughs> I didn't actually either. Most of mine was around the uh, again, I. Like usually the the dopamine, the neurotransmitters, the the functional MRI scans, and different studies that they've done that way. My question is: Do you think uh, do you think it, it matters that we've been only focusing on that? Like maybe maybe it's no different. Like, mm-hmm. well, I, I, that's a good question. Actually, matter. Because, um, I mean. I, I would say if if anything, it's not necessarily that they love differently. I just think maybe the stage of attraction is different where they're attracted to the same gender. I think that's kind of, I, I don't know, it's a, it's a complicated question to ask, but I, I've never, you know, assumed that they loved any differently. I, I mean, they're human, so I assume most humans love the same way. Well, I I think if we're looking at like compassionate love, I think it might just play play out similarly because um, 
bonding is different, but yeah, there might be different neural mechanisms when it comes to like, I would say initial attraction and that sex drive. Because um, if we're looking at, let's say like two males, um, the, the difference of that vasopressin versus oxytocin isn't there because they both have, they both have vasopressin that's going up during foreplay, whatever, and they both have a decline of vasopressin once um, both orgasms. So like, how does that, uh, yeah, I guess, how does that affect uh, one's short-term or long-term relations with others? I mean, yeah, I, the thing is, too, is the stuff that um, was indicated earlier in the podcast that, uh, let's say, males would look for in females and females would look for in males would be shifted because of, of the difference. Uh, and that can come also from a, a chemically, uh, sorry, a chemical change of sorts. Mm-hmm. I've just actually looked it up, and it's not so much an in-depth study. It's more a report on The Guardian. Um, And again, I've just kind of scanned it briefly, but it looked at um, gay men and heterosexual women have similarly shaped brains. Um, Mm -hmm. They said that sexual orientation is hardwired into our neural circuitry, and that's probably what, what, I mean, again, the love, I guess, is the same, but um, I guess it's it's the orientation that really determines who who you look for, who you mate with. Um, they said that exposure to testosterone in the womb can influence sexual orientation. So that's something we'd have to look more into because, again, I'm just looking at it briefly, but I guess there is some information out there. We just haven't uh, necessarily gone in depth with it. I mean, one possibility is that, you know, we take what is known from the heterosexual literature about those sex differences, for example, that Ayaz brought up at the beginning, and then maybe when we're looking for what's going on in a homosexual relationship, uh, it might be that the profiles are similar to um, who they're attracted to. So, So it doesn't matter if you're male or female. Um, in terms of those sex differences, what matters is what who you're attracted to, and so maybe you you sh- you demonstrate more of a like neurochemical profile um, of a female if you're attracted to males, regardless of whether you're genetically male or genetically female. But hormonally, mm-hmm. you might have that same profile. Would I don't that know be limited to uh, specific brain regions, um, like governing attraction? Because like someone like like you said like um, a neural profile of a female like a, a male with a neural profile of a female was that, does that does that specifically um, is that specifically for their um, their system that has to do with attraction or just in general? Does that? Um. I mean, it could be in general. I was referring to just like sexual attraction, but mm-hmm. um, but it. I mean, it, it's definitely a question I think that is being explored from a general perspective. Okay. Now, what about people who believe the terms asexual, where they're not attracted? That would be. I mean, I would imagine to find some differences. Mm-hmm. Correct. That's a really. What is of 
in people who consider themselves sexual because one of my other questions was is mating and attraction and bonding and i think those the article you brought up at the beginning about the different phases um involved in to be asexual and not be interested in sexually still what is of each of them wait sorry guys is this happening for everyone that mandy's cutting off or is it just me yeah, yeah no, it is. Finding she was. It. I thought it was oh, my it was headphones, but... Yeah. Okay, okay, yeah, because I didn't hear, like, anything, <laughs> any of that. Sorry. Yeah, I still can't hear you. I'm just hearing, like, a half a word, and then it's cutting off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm experiencing okay, well, talk, talk. 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 Can you hear us okay? Yep. Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> anyway... Am I back? Is it, or? It's it's in bits and pieces. Like some yeah. people, like some of it, we can hear you coherently. Some of it's just cutting off. Okay. What are your final thoughts on love? Hmm. It's complicated. I would say <laughs> <laughs> it's very complicated. I think love. Um, speaking in general, I think two people who can find each other that fit perfectly into that mold where they find each other equally attractive and can get on with it are very lucky because I think a lot of us have had experiences where you like someone and they won't like you back or someone will like you and you won't like them back despite having all the right qualities and all the right things that you look at. So even though you might find someone who has everything that you're looking for in a partner, you might still not love them, which is quite unfortunate and vice versa. So I would say two people who can find um, something that they're looking for in the other person that meet all the criteria and they happen to fall in love with each other, I would say are very lucky people. Yeah, I would, I would be curious in how we quantify it. Yeah. I mean, when, when I say to Chester, I love you more than anything in the world, mm-hmm. you know, what does that amount to? You know, and, and I guess it, I don't know, it's a complicated topic. And I guess, you know, some people's ability to love is impaired. I would be interested in looking at that, you know, people who, who, um, hurt other people you know like sadistic people are are they capable of love are they not so what gives somebody the ability to do so i have to say this is the hardest i feel like um in all the topics that we've discussed i found this the most difficult to just research and um, Mm -hmm. talk about i would actually tend to agree just because it can go in many different directions and there's so many different dimensions even when you're looking when you're looking at kids, like Lauren says about quantifying, you say to a child, "Do you love me?" Yes. How much? I love you this much. And they, they, my niece and nephew, who are are quite young, 
used to do that with us. And it's, it's really interesting too, to see how a child would react to that as opposed to when you get into your adult days um, and, you know, looking for a partner or whatnot, how that all sort of changes. Mm -hmm. There's a lot out there too, uh, where they're talking about people who will fall in love, get married and whatnot. And then later on, unfortunately divorce split up. And, you know, what is it that at that time, um, they were in love, but all of a sudden now they've, they've quote, mm -hmm. fallen out of it, close quote. Mm -hmm. So um, there is discussions about that out there. I think it'd be interesting to see, though, from, you know, a neuroscientific uh, kind of a framework, what, what's happening when those sorts of things happen. Mm -hmm. Can you all hear me again? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, one of the things kind of related to that, Chris, is I guess my interest has shifted a little bit about what is love. Like I've explored a lot of and thought about these a lot for my entire work in more recently having a child, you know, I've, I've sort of experienced love from a different perspective and not even just my love, but his love for me. And then realizing how it's going to change because I see how much I, I call it love, but how much he, he wants me and needs me and liter and, and loves me in that definition. Um, but I also know that at some point he's starting to move away. He's getting older and he's three and a half, but you know, like he's, he's, his independence is growing and as his independence grows. Eventually he's going to have more of a relationship like I have with my parents where, you know, I don't see them every single day. Well, I see my mom every day, but you know, I don't necessarily see them every day. I don't talk to them. I don't tell them I love them so much. I don't love them this much. And you know, the, that changes. And so how does that change, you know, and you know, is that just bonding or, you know, is that about love or whatever? Anyway, that's that's where my mind is with all of this stuff uh, at present. But I think that, like, I'm, all of the stuff, the thinking that you all did around this, because it really is a big topic. And uh, thanks for being courageous to explore this. And I know, we don't, you know, we got like a little snippet of all out there. So I hope it provoked your thought, your think more about this for the rest of your careers in this and hopefully listeners can think more about what is love and start to wonder more about it from a biological perspective and a social perspective. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's important too, given that we're at the point in society where gay marriage is now okay. So, but in some countries it's still not. So I think we need to divulge further into this research so that we can advocate for people and their their right to love who they want you know and I mean the saying love is love I, I think that that's that pertains a lot to this topic this week so yeah it's great well thank you all thank you professor take care okay. guys all the best okay right. bye. bye guys take care everyone